Well, good morning. We are uh, jumping into a new series in the book of Romans as a church. Uh, last year, we started the first uh, half of Romans, got up to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start in Romans chapter uh, 9 uh, this morning. And uh, if you're familiar with the scriptures uh, or the Bible, uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans are some of the most controversial, uh, hard to understand, mysterious, profound uh, chapters of all scripture. And uh, I know I say that a lot by a lot of chapters and verses, but this is really true. So I thought, hey, why not uh, jump back in 2021 uh, to Romans 9, 10, and 11? And, uh, and that'll be a good challenge for us this morning. But at the same time, I think it's important uh, to remember that these uh, chapters are, are essential for understanding what God is up to in the world. And so regardless of what we see on, in media or what's going on in the news or what's going on at the Capitol, it's, God is, has a plan of redemption and has a purpose in the world to redeem and restore all things. And so uh, he hasn't stopped uh, infiltrating that plan and he's still at work uh, making sure that plan comes to uh, fruition. And so I, I find great comfort as we look at chapters like Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11 that uh, you would hopefully be encouraged by them to remember that God is uh, doing something, and he always is, and, uh, and we get to be part of that, a, a small part of that, albeit. Um, so if you have a Bible, here's what I want to do, because I'm looking at three chapters. I can't read all of them, because we'll spend most of the sermon just reading the, the chapters, uh, is if you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read a couple of verses from 9, 10, and 11 uh, to kind of frame our time, and then we'll jump in uh, together. So Romans uh, chapter 9, I'm going to read the first uh, couple verses here, first uh, five verses, I think. Um, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jump over to chapter 10 of Romans. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Go to chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Go to verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And this is the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for God's, God's help. Father, we, we come to you and we humbly submit to your word because we know you're a speaking God, you're a communicating God. And there's a lot of things you have revealed to us, and that doesn't mean everything you've revealed to us is easy to understand. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is case in point. But you've given us enough to understand who you are and your desires for us and your world and what went wrong and why things are the way they are and, and how we can know you and walk with you. And, and so we thank you for that. We, we humbly submit to that this morning is that, that we don't know everything, but we do know something. And so as we look at these difficult chapters, I pray your spirit will come and teach us and guide us, and comfort us, and convict us, illuminate our hearts and minds to hear and receive what you have for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as some of you uh, know, uh, this last summer, the church was gracious to give me a couple months off, gave me a sabbatical, and one of the, the great uh, joys that I had, the, the, I guess, say the privilege to do with my family was take about a two-week uh, road trip around the country, and we got to do this in an RV, which once you've traveled in an RV, you can never go back, uh, especially if you have little uh, children, because there's a bathroom in there, you never have to stop, you can make food, uh, you never have to stop, and, and it was a great opportunity for us to kind of see the country 
country in a unique way. And if you know me because I'm a, I'm a man and most men don't like to ask for directions or acknowledge when they are lost, uh, is that I've learned over the years that even though we have these little things called phones with uh, maps on them and GPS and all this, is we're still old school and we bring an actual paper map on our trips. Um, and this is uh, my father-in-law as a map guy. He knows where everything is in the universe um, according to a paper map. Um, and so there was a moment in our trip where we were, uh, I think, in Booneyville, Nevada, um, and it was like a scene from The Walking Dead, and there's, like, there's no people, uh, there's like a shack and like a weird guy out in the woods and, you know, that kind of stuff, uh, no gas stations, and we're getting really low on gas. And my wife, being loving as she is and gracious as she is, says, honey, are you sure this was the way we were supposed to go? And not wanting to acknowledge my folly and probably should have taken a different route with more gas stations and life and hope in case we uh, run out of gas in the RV and get slaughtered by some weirdo out in the woods, I pulled out the paper map and realized that, yeah, that probably wasn't the best route to have go, gone. And she's trying to kind of figure out where we are because we had no cell, cell reception. And so there you are. Now, what's interesting about Romans chapter 9, there is a point to all of this in 10 and 11, is that you can imagine Paul has this map of the scriptures and he's holding it up to our faces and he's asking the question, are we reading the map wrong? And here's why, because we just came out of, if you remember months and months ago, we finished up uh, Romans chapter 8, and right at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul makes this great uh, exertion uh, and exhortion, and, and, and he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor p rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the greatest uh, group of verses in all the universe that nothing can separate us from Christ's love. If we've embraced him, if we walk with him, we, we're always going to be with him. We are assured of this salvation. And yet the question is, as we hold up the map, what is going on with Israel? Why are they not coming to faith? Why are all these Gentiles, people that didn't have the scriptures and didn't have the promises and didn't have the traditions, why are they not coming to faith? I don't understand. And that's why Romans 9, 10, and 11 feels very odd. Because we come from Romans 8 right into 9, 10, 11. It's almost like Paul had this moment of just ADD and he's just like, I need to write this down. It doesn't seem to fit. And yet it fits perfectly. Because he wants to specifically address more than anything, not just Israel, Gentiles as well, but the mission of God that God hasn't forgot his people, his people who knew the Old Testament scriptures, who, who knew the history, knew the promises, knew the traditions, that while they may not be coming to faith at this time in the first century, they will, because God doesn't break his promises and he has a plan for them. Um, and so, so as we look at these three chapters, again, I have to do a lot of summarizing uh, this morning because it's a lot of, of verses here and a lot of, um, but, but I wanted to keep them intact because I think the argument of 9, 10, 11 kind of worked together and that's why I didn't want to separate them all out. But what's going to help us first, and hopefully you caught that as I read these, those first verses before, is, is what helps us frame the argument here of Paul is these personal, three personal statements that I just read. Did you, did you catch it? His emotional pain and sorrow he feels for Israel. I'm speaking the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears my witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because his own brothers and sisters aren't coming to faith. Paul is moved by this. What is going on? Are we reading the map backwards? Did God break his promises? You notice in chapter 10, he has this prayer and this longing for their salvation. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I want them to come into the family of God. I want them to be part of what I've already experienced. He has this anguish, this longing, this prayer in his heart. Oh God, what is going on? And then in verse, uh, or chapter 11, I ask then, as God rejected his people, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He was from the same family, the same tribe, the same background, the same customs, knew the same scriptures, and he had tasted this gospel grace, 
this righteousness of God. But he says, why don't they understand it? I want them to understand it. So what, what Paul is doing here in Romans 9, 10, 11, and the entire letter, he's not doing cold and formal theology. He's not sitting down to write a systematic theology. Here is a man, you hear it in his voice, here's a man who longs for his people to know Christ. And here's a man who's been called by God. He came, he was a, a terrorist who hated Christians. And God redeemed him and rescued him and says, I have a mission for you, not to your own people, actually to the Gentiles. And I want to see them redeemed because I have a plan. I've had a plan from the beginning that Jews and Gentiles would come in to the family of God. And so when we look at Paul and we look at his longing, this is how you do theology well. This is not about debate. This is not about being right. But this is about worship and longing that there are people in your life, in my life, that don't know the goodness of God. And that should move us to tears and move us to pray. And that's what Paul is doing here. It's not just, let, let me give you the information, but I want my family to come in. I want them to know. I want them to taste and I want them to see. It's not just to have good theology, which we are after, but it's to taste and see, that, and which leads us to prayer and mission and service and worship. And I think Paul's a great example of how this is done. So, the way I'm going to frame this message is through six questions. Again, I'm going to be doing a lot of summarizing because uh, the sermon's only three hours. Don't worry, I ordered lunch. We'll be fine. Okay, it's two, but no, it's not. I'm going to keep it succinct, but there's six questions that are woven through chapters 9, 10, and 11 that's going to help us understand what Paul is doing here, why he longs for his own people to come to faith, because at this point in the life of the church, uh, they are not. And even in, the, in 2,000 years later, we're not seeing massive amounts of people from Israel, Jewish people, come to faith, but there's a reason for that, and, and Paul's going to make it fairly clear, but there's also that element of mystery as well. So question number one, has God's word failed? You, you, you probably heard me with my, my map analogy is, are we holding the map backwards? Are, are we not understanding God's promises? Because how could the people that know the scriptures backwards and forward, that, that the Jewish Messiah that was prophesied to come, comes and they don't believe and they don't embrace Christ? What the heck's going on? Has God's word failed? We see that in verse six, chapter nine. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So, so what, is he, what is he saying here? Has God's word failed? Because Romans, end of Romans 8 seems like, hey, nobody's separated from the love of God. That would include Israel, I'm assuming. But he just answered his own question. There's two Israels. Chapter 6, or verse 6, But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. There's two Israels. There's an ethnic Israel. There's those that belong, that are, that are born into the family. They are Jewish, Israelite people. So they're just born into it, right? It, they didn't have a choice. They're born into the family of God. But that didn't make them true descendants of the promise. This is what Paul is saying. There's another group. There's a spiritual Israel. There are people that actually embraced the promises. So it's not enough for you just to be born into the right family. But there comes a point where you, by faith, have to embrace the promise. And that's why he uses these examples he illustrates with Abraham, the, the seed of Abraham, that through this, the, the promises of Abraham in Genesis 12 and, and 17, that through his family there's going to be a, a great uh, salvation that will come, and there's going to be, uh, through his kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids, the gospel's going to go forth, and people are going to respond. Paul talks about that in Galatians 4, that, that those who believe in Christ are also part of the promise that was made to Abraham. All good things. But what do we notice in the family of Abraham? Not all his kids responded to the promise, did they? Sarah's child would count, but not Hagar's kid would accept the, the promise. Isaac would accept the promise, but not Ishmael. So, so in this example, what Paul is doing, he's saying there's two different Israels. Just because you're born into Israel doesn't mean you're part of the promise. 
That's not how it works. There's still a response that is needed. So there's a, a group that was born into it, but there's also a group that was born into it, but they responded by faith to what was already promised to them. Key text here, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had, not, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Did, did you catch it? Had nothing to do with the family in which they were born. Had nothing to do with whether they were good people or bad people, because that's how we know the gospel works, right? We were all born iniquity. We, in iniquity, we were all born in sin, David would tell us in, in, in the Psalms, right? Psalm 51. That, that's our lot, Right? So, so coming into the family of God has nothing to do with what family you're born in. You can be born into a Christian family, but there still requires a response. You can come from the right church or the right background or the right lineage, but it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with your behavior. It has nothing to do with how good or how bad you are, but it has to do with God's electing grace. So here's the challenge with Israel. It was never you're special and chosen, sit back and relax, right? Isn't that kind of how when you read the Old Testament, you even read the, the disciples, it's almost like they're kind of like, we're the chosen. What's the big deal? We're already in. But why did Jesus always have the harshest words against Israel and the religious people? It's because they sat back and relaxed and were like, well, hey, we're the chosen. It doesn't matter ultimately what we believe or how we behave. Now, they cared about how they behaved, but they didn't understand how this works. It's not just being a chosen people sitting back and, and relaxing. It was always, you are so special. Why are you taking God for granted? Why are you not honoring him and taking his purposes forward? That's why God is losing his mind constantly in the prophets in the Old Testament. He's saying, you guys know the promises. You know my grace. You know my mercy. And yet you still reject me. And you still worship idols, right? So there's, instead of saying, I can't believe we're part of this thing, I can't believe God's grace and mercy has fallen upon us, why would I not want to listen to you and follow you and worship you and serve you all of my days? They just sit back and go, like, we're the chosen. We're good. Everything's going to work out because we've been born into the right family. But that's exactly what Paul is pushing against, that there's two Israels and God's word has not failed because some have respond, responded and some have not. And so God's grace, God's election, if you want to use the, the doctrinal term here, is to make us humble and not arrogant and superior. Like if, if we understand that this is how God works and his grace works, it should not make us pump up our, ourselves and, and flex our muscles, right? You know, I love to use the, the analogy of the Grand Canyon. Right? Nobody stands on the edge of the Grand Canyon and flexes their muscles and says, look how awesome I am. Right? And, and on our trip this summer, we actually went to the Grand Ca Canyon, and I can attest to you, you are not awesome. Like, that's a stinking big hole. Right? And I didn't stand on the, on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and my, my wife and kids know I use that illustration a lot, so I, I did flex my muscles next to it, but they laughed, right? And they're just, they laugh at my muscles anyways, but that's a whole different sermon. But you stand before this... God created whole, and it humbles you. You feel tiny and small. And God's electing grace was always meant for us to lead us to our knees, to our face, to say, only you, God, could bring me into your family. That I have nothing to bring. I'm not good. I, I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve your mercy. And, and that's why the next question it leads perfectly right into the next question. Well, okay, that's fine, but is God unjust then? Right? Is God unjust? Is God just arbitrary? Is he just randomly choosing people to save, just picking people off and going, you, you, not you? Is that how this, this all works? Well, it seems like Paul's had these questions many times over because he keeps asking the questions right in his own letter. If you go to verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So when he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever, whomever he wills. Okay, so is God unjust? 
He's just picking off people. You're going to be a Christian. You're not. Just, you know, good luck. Well, if you remember, the, the, he's using an example from Exodus. When Moses is talking to God and pleading on behalf of the people, he's going to lead his people. He wants to know more of who this God is. He, he pleads that he would show him his glory in Exodus chapter 33, 17. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Show me who you are. Show me your name. Help me understand your character, your heart, what, what you're about. I will make, and, then, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God reveals his character, his heart, and he says, I will show grace and I will show mercy on whomever I want to show grace and mercy to. Now you may see that as, well, that just seems unjust and unfair, but it also depends on how you define mercy and how you define grace. Because mercy defined isn't obligation. It's a free and it's a gift. If you think God owes you something, you don't understand mercy. If you think anyone owes you anything, it's not mercy anymore. It's obligation. God does not owe us anything. We don't deserve anything. And so God has every right to save who he pleases because that's how mercy works. Are you with me? It's not mercy then, right? It's something else. It's, it's I'm owed. I deserve. Well, based on what? Because you're awesome? Let me take you down a notch. You're not awesome, and neither am I. We don't even deserve to have life. We don't deserve to have grace. We don't have to deserve to have, have, have breath in our lungs, and yet God graciously and generously continually pours out his mercy and grace on you. I remember years ago in 9-11 when people said, you know, what about, you know, the, the the hundreds and, uh, of people who died in, in the plane crashes, which, which is awful. I'm not minimizing that at all. But nobody wants to talk about God's mercy on the billions of people that have not died in plane crashes. Right? It's mercy. It's not owed. It's not deserved. It's not obligation. So God has every right to show mercy on who he wants to show mercy to. So it's not, is God arbitrary, choosing some and not others? The better question is, does God owe or deserve to save anyone? Verse 16, I, love, uh, I think is helpful. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not on your morality, your goodness, your behavior, but it's on the God who is merciful and he has every right to redeem and, rest and restore anyone that he chooses. It's a little bit like this. If, if a, let's imagine a, a man has a, a lot of money, and he decides, you know, I, I want to help kids go to college. And I'm going to give 20 scholarships to kids to, to help them get to college. Maybe they, they're not able to do that. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe there's just not opportunity, whatever it is. And so he, he gets these scholarships to these 20 people. Now, you could see that and go, like, well, you have enough money to give to 40 people. You have enough money to give 100 people. You could, you could give enough money to all the, people, all the kids in our city. Well, why aren't you doing that? Because this is how mercy works. He's not obligated to give scholarships to every single kid. He's not obligated to use his money in any way that you tell him to. What he's doing is an act of mercy to even send one kid to college is mercy. Are you with me? Right? This is how God works. It's not unjust. God is not unjust if it's based on mercy and not on merit. I love the quote from, from John Stott. He says, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. It sounds like a non sequitur, but it's not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived. Because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. It's not justice, but mercy. Okay, pastor, well, if, if God's just, well, then, then how can God hold us responsible 
for our response. If he's the one who redeems, he's the one that saves, well, how are we responsible? That seems a little crazy, right? If God's the one who opens our hearts to receive him and, and walk with him, well, that seems like, how can we be responsible? Again, Paul has heard this question before. And in verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, <laughs> it's like he already knows what you're going to bring up. He already knows the question. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Of course. I mean, how can, if God's merciful, well, what's going on here? We, have to, we, we still have to respond. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? As the potter, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump or vessel for honorable use and another and dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? So are we responsible well, Paul's heard it before, and he gives two answers. He says, well, well, God has every right to work in this way. Every right. Are you the potter? Are you the one who created yourself? Are you the one who determines how salvation works? And I hope in all humility you can say no. <laughs> right? Like, that's almost, not like I want to end the sermon yet. I still have a few more points, but, but it kind of works that way, doesn't it? That the God of heaven and earth who created all things and created us in his image, who gave us life and breath and a family and opportunities and all the things that we get to enjoy each and every day, he didn't have to do any of it. He didn't have to do any. He wasn't, he wasn't sad. He wasn't lonely. God wasn't incomplete. He didn't need you for anything. But he does it for his glory and for his mercy. Because that's who he is. Because he wanted you to enjoy his love and grace and mercy for all your days, now and for all of eternity. Jesus said, they said the mission was that you would experience what the Father and the Son and the Spirit have experienced for all of eternity, this love. I want you to, to experience it, not because, you, because I, I need it or I need you for anything. It's because of who I am. Because that's what I'm like, is I'm merciful and generous, and that's what I do. And so we have to first humble ourselves to think God has every right to work in this way. Paul says it pretty clearly. But also, if God is the author of salvation, we have to be the author of our own damnation. I know that's a strong word, but that's what Paul's arguing here. Did you catch it in verse 22? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? You see, people are not made evil by God. They're not. We make ourselves evil by the, what we do, by our own sin, right? He doesn't, he doesn't make us sin. God is not the author of sin and evil. And, and so what happens is God is so gracious and patient with us that even before we believe in him, he gives us opportunity after opportunity to respond to him. Right? Peter talks this way. He gives us, he, God is so patient with us that we would come to repentance and faith in him. That, that even in our folly, even in our, our hardness of heart, God is doing something. He's passing over us constantly, giving us exactly what our hearts already want. And that's what he's saying here. Is that we're just getting what we already want. That's why like C.S. Lewis always talked about, you know, why, why would people say, hey, God deserves to give everybody heaven? Well, why? Well, you wouldn't enjoy it if you don't know Christ. Why would you want to be there? Right? If we spend our whole lives ignoring God, belittling God, not honoring God, not enjoying God, why would you want to be in heaven with his people? That doesn't make any sense. But God, in his patience, in his mercy, doesn't give us what we all deserve. He gives us opportunity after opportunity to respond to him. That's why earlier in the letter, in Romans chapter 1, it says there in 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men uh, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God was giving them up to what they already wanted. The passions of their flesh, the sin that was already in them. He said, here, if this is what you want, you can have it. God's not the author of our damnation. He's not the author of our sin and evil. It it requires a response. We have to take responsibility. And this is where we live in this very mysterious tension, right? Let's have a little humility here this morning, church, to say that even though God is sovereign, there is still a requirement for us to respond, and somehow Paul is able to live in those tensions. To say Israel had every opportunity to respond to Christ, but many of them didn't. They sat back. That some would even argue that Pharaoh's hard heart was God just giving him what he already wa- wanted, was that he was already a rebel against God and didn't want to listen to God, and so he already had a hard heart. So he says, hey, I'm just passing you over because that's what you want. He had every opportunity to worship Yahweh, but he did not. He had every opportunity to lead, to release Israel from uh, slavery, but he did not. And in the same way, all day long, all of us, including ourselves, but also others, that we would long to know Christ, have every opportunity, but they resist. No thank you. And I also want to say that when it comes to hardening of heart, that doesn't mean it's permanent either. It can be a seasoning of hardening. It can be for a majority of your life, but hardening doesn't mean they're always lost. Well, there's always an opportunity for God to soften the heart. That's what happens when the gospel comes in and the spirit comes in. The heart, heart is softened to receive what God has to receive these promises. I'll quote John Stott one more time. If anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. The antimony contains a mystery which, which our present knowledge cannot solve, but it's consistent with scripture, history, and experience. There is a mystery here. There's a tension here, right? And I I can't get up here in good conscience to say I I understand it all and I I have it nailed down. But somehow Paul's able to live in those tensions that God is merciful, who who he wants to be merciful on, but we also have a responsibility to respond to him. Okay, question four. A couple more and we'll be done. It won't be three hours, I promise. What then shall we say? So Paul asks another, another question here. At the end of chapter 9, beginning of, of chapter 10, well, what do we do with Israel? Because we still haven't answered, we're still trying to answer that question. Why are they not coming to faith? Earlier in the chapter, they, they have all the promises, they have the scriptures, they have the customs, they, they know this Jesus is going to come and he's going to be Jewish, and he's going to be in the line of David, and yet they're rejecting him. Why? Well, look at the end of chapter 9. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But, the, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Verse Chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness. They have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the answer, so so he says, well, what's the deal here? Why is Israel not coming in? What is really going on here? How can these Gentiles who don't even know the scriptures, don't know the traditions, don't know the customs, they're coming in droves and Israel's nowhere to be found? It seems kind of weird. Like, their Messiah's Jewish. Ding, ding, ding. Shouldn't that alert something, right? Like, that's always the baffling thing. Like, Jesus was Jewish. He came into a Jewish culture. He was a rabbi. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. They're just like, I don't think that's him. I don't think that's him. There's someone else. I know it said he's going to be born in Bethlehem and born to a virgin. I know he was, but I don't know. Isaiah 53 is wrong, right? It's a little confusing. But did you catch his answer? Israel didn't pursue this promise by faith, but they tried to pursue it by works. He he says, Paul says, 
But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Do you hear what he's saying? He says all these laws and commands from God, do you know what the point of them were? To lead you to faith. Why? Because you stink at keeping the law. That's why. Right? Like all these glorious Ten Commandments and all these commands of God was not to puff them up and go, yep, got it nailed. It's to humble you to go like, I can't love God with all my heart, mind, soul, strength. I can't love my neighbor as myself. I need a Savior. I need God's grace. Right? The law was always a pointer to God's mercy and grace that we need a Savior. That's why it didn't go far enough. But what does Israel do? They puff themselves up and say, look how righteous we are. Look how uh, obedient we are. But it's a righteousness and an obedience apart from faith in Christ. And that's why Jesus is upset with them so often. Because you come in here and you puff yourself up in all these traditions of men, but you don't come to me for life. That's what John 5 says. You search the scriptures diligently, but you don't come to the one that pointed to them the whole time. Right? It almost should cause us tears. It should cause us tears to say that like, we can have all the greatest theology in the world and go to the right churches and read the right things, but if you don't come to Jesus, the, the scriptures that point to this Jesus, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. That's always been the goal. Okay, I didn't mean to say that much on that one, but... but they didn't pursue it by faith, but, but by works. But they also, the second thing is that he, he acknowledges, Paul does, is he says, they have this zeal without knowledge. They're these, these fanatics for God, but they miss the point. They were not chosen by God because of their work or their righteousness or their heritage. It was all mercy and grace. But here's the problem. They have this zeal, this passion, but they have no knowledge. They didn't slow down long enough to realize that all these commands and customs and traditions were to point to the reality that none of us can pull this thing off. That all of us need God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. They didn't reflect long enough to say it's not about what I do and my will and, my, and being born into the right family. It was a zeal without knowledge. Now, brothers and sisters, how many people do you know, maybe yourself, that has a lot of zeal but no knowledge? Because zeal without knowledge, you can be excited about God, but it can lead you to all kinds of dark places without thinking through the implications of how this works and what this gospel is and how the word of God has been revealed to us can lead us into all kinds of dark places. Because you hear phrases like this all the time. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. <laughs> I don't want any of us to ever say that. That's zeal without knowledge. As long as you're sincere, that didn't lead anywhere good for Israel, did it? They were very sincere. But they didn't understand how it works. Zeal with knowledge is trusting Christ and his righteousness and not our own. That's zeal with knowledge. That you are not awesome and God is. That all fall short of the glory of God and need God's grace and mercy. Guess what? Even after you're a Christian, that we don't base our lives on our own righteousness or, 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 or how we vote or how we see things or, or what party we're a part of or what group we're a part of or what church we're a part of or what theology we're into. Those just end up being just like, like Israel and just like the Pharisees who, who propped themselves up and pointed to their resume instead of pointing to the ultimate resume, Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and his righteousness. That's zeal with knowledge. That's zeal with knowledge. Yes, I want you to be sincere about your faith, but I want it to be rooted with truth and content and backbone, not just emotion. Okay. Two more questions will be done, I promise. To be quick. So did God, question five, did God reject his people? Actually, pretty simple, according to Paul. Did God reject his people? Chapter 11 Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. He gives a hearty no means. By no means. For I myself am an Israelite. Look at all the evidence he gives. He goes, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes, look at my life. I'm an Israelite. God saved me. Of course he hasn't given up on his people. I mean, when we talk about Paul, we talk about Ph.D. Jew. 
okay? Like, he's more Jewish than anyone is Jewish, right? If he has a resume, it's Paul. He's a PhD in knowing the scriptures, knowing the commands, knowing everything. And he says, yeah, God's called me. God saved me. Of course God hasn't broken his promises. He uses the, the, the election argument in, in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Right? He, he, he knew who was going to respond and who wasn't going to respond. He sees the whole thing. He wasn't waiting back and saying, well, let's see who, who responds. He, he knows how this is going to work. He knows he's going to respond to his grace and who, to his mercy. God sees. God knows. He uses Elijah as an example. Here's this prophet who comes. Who, he has these prophecies. He says, well, it seems like God's people have given up on you. So let's move on. He says, no, there's a remnant of my people that are still here. I haven't given up on them. There's still grace here. Don't, don't abandon them. There, there was always a remnant of Israel, right? Isn't that amazing? Throughout history, there's always still this group of people that still are responding to him. It may not be a big group. Even in Paul's day, it wasn't a big group of people. But there were still Jewish people and Israelites coming into faith in these churches, of course. He hasn't abandoned them. Um, the grace argument, verse 5. So then at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I love that. Mercy, if it's based on works, is no longer mercy. Grace that's based on works is no longer grace. Of course. My grace is all over these people. Yeah, they may not be coming in droves right now, but guess what? The promises are still true. There are still a remnant of people that I am redeeming and going to bring into the family of God. Now, chapter 11 is probably the most complicated, the most difficult one. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time digging into it because it, it's still very difficult. But there is a, an interesting thing that some smart theologians would say in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? It's an interesting text, but it's something like this. Is it possible that God in his sovereign grace and mercy, Israel didn't come in in full droves in the first century in Rome and still haven't come in in big numbers to this day, but is it because God is bringing in the Gentiles? And there will be a time where there's going to be a bigger influx of Jewish pe people, which I agree, because if you read verse 25, it says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And I don't, again, I know all can mean all. I don't know if it means all right here. Only because a lot of Israel hasn't been saved, as we can witness throughout history. But they will come in. He just said it well. I know it's mysterious, I know it's difficult, but they will come in. It's not us to decide how many or how big this will happen or where this will happen or when this will happen, but they will come in because God's promises are always True, and God is up to something to say, well, maybe it's, this is the reason why all the Gentiles are coming, and so Israel will be jealous and say, how can these people who don't even know the scriptures and don't know the customs and don't know the heritage, why are they part of the family, but we are not? That it would open their eyes to say, we're part of this family too, and Jesus is our Messiah, and Jesus is the King, and Jesus is the one that they were pointing to all along in the Old Testament. So God has not rejected his people, his chosen people. But a response to Jesus is required by faith. I know there's a lot of talk about well, why, why do we even evangelize Jewish people or Israel? Like, What's the point? It's because of Romans 9, 10, and 11. They still need to hear about Jesus. We don't want to allow them to be in a scenario they've been in for, for thousands of years where they sit back and go like, we're the chosen one, that's fine. We're in. We're good. That's not how this works. It's by faith that we come in, right? Faith in the Messiah Jesus. Faith in the risen King who lived and died and rose again. That, that faith in Him, that's how they, they come in the same way everybody comes in, the same way Gentiles come in, right? 
doesn't matter who you are. You be pagan, Israel, Buddhist, it doesn't matter. It all, we all come through the same thing. It's trust in Jesus Christ, the creator God, the redeemer God. That's the way in. It doesn't matter if you're Israel or Gentile or something in between, as if there isn't something in between. It's through the same path that we would continue to proclaim good news. Now, that's my, my last point. Question six, what is our response? And there's two, simply. I didn't spend a ton of time in chapter 10, or really any of the chapters, just because we had to summarize a lot. But in chapter 10, Paul says in verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? Well, how, how is Israel going to come in? How are Gentiles going to come in? How is your neighbor going to come in? By preaching the good news, by proclaiming the good news, by telling others that this, the creator God and redeemer God has a, had a plan from the fullness of time to, to create us in his image and then to, to through Abraham and through the prophets and, and point all the way to this Messiah who would come and live a life we should have lived and, and die a death we should have died and, and be risen from the dead who's returning to restore all things. This Messiah, this good news who can forgive us of all of our sin, sins and give us a new relationship with God. This Jesus, we have good news to tell. How are they going to know unless we open our mouths? Faith comes by hearing, Paul says. And that's part of all of our mission. That wasn't just Paul's mission. That's the whole church's. We're called to be ambassadors of Christ. We're called to, to make disciples of all nations. And so what's our response? Well, it's, we have good news to tell. We have, we have good news to, to tell in word and in deed. That God's going to use means, these means of pro proclamation to save and redeem people. And that's probably your story in some way, right? How'd you come to faith? Even if you're born in a Christian family, right? You went to church, you heard the gospel, you read a book, your mom shared the gospel with you, your neighbor, your friend. Uh, it was a campus ministry, right? It was Uncle Larry, right? There was some means of grace that God put in your life. It was the scriptures themselves. Some of you watched a Billy Graham crusade on TV and came to Christ. I mean, you name it, right? There was means in which the, the gospel, the word was proclaimed and God opened your eyes and opened your heart and removed the scales so that you could believe and confirm that his promises are true. And then secondly, it's worship and doxology. Only in God's providential grace could you end a chapter, or a section of chapters with Paul's glorious doxology in Romans chapter 11, right at the end. He gets to the end of this heavy, mysterious, deep, profound, teaching about God's election and, and Israel and are they in or out or what's going on and how this whole things work and he kind of throws up his hands in worship and says oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God Romans eleven thirty three. how unsearchable are his judgment how inscrutable his ways for he has known the mind of the Lord for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid who has flexed their muscles over the Grand Canyon hopefully none of us and said, God, hey, look at this. Isn't this awesome? He says, no, that's not awesome. You've got to hit the buys a little harder. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If our understanding of God's gracious election and sovereignty does not lead us to worship and doxology, we are doing it wrong. And what I love about this doxology is that it says a lot about our response of worship it's not about argumentation and debate. It's about worship. That we have to worship with truth. We want zeal with knowledge. I would say also there's no study or teaching of truth without worship. If it doesn't lead to worship, we're not doing it right. I was, I was sharing with Sam Burns uh, earlier, I think it was last week or the week before, in, in seminary, or not in college actually, we had a, a systematic theology teacher who used to have us sing hymns before we did systematic theology. And I used to think, why are we doing this? Because he was a horrible singer and it was just awkward, right? Like when your teacher just busts out in song in the middle of a lecture, a little awkward. But as the weeks went on and the months went on, I finally understood what he was doing. Theology and doctrine and teaching without worship is wrongheaded. If it doesn't lead us to how unsearchable are your ways, we're not doing it right.
and I'm slow, and that's why it takes me to understand things, but doctrines that exalt God lead to the greatest joy, zeal with knowledge. We don't minimize chapters like 9, 10, 11, say, well, that's just really difficult, let's just move on. We believe it leads to greater joy, to understand as much as we can of who God is. Now, lastly, we do not have to understand everything to praise the God who knows everything. You with me? You don't have to understand everything to praise the God who knows everything. That's how it works. That's what Paul's doing here. He's brilliant. Paul is brilliant. He wrote three-fourths of the New Testament. Anybody have that on the resume? Don't say yes. You're a heretic. Leave. No, you didn't. The answer is no. Right? Brilliant guy. And yet he comes to the end and goes, mystery, amazing. Who could counsel God? Who can fully understand this? I pray, New City, we would have that kind of humility and that kind of posture before God and before, as we do theology, as we hear the scriptures, as we learn and grow together, that it would lead to worship, lead to humility, lead to, I don't know, I don't understand. But it doesn't mean we can't praise God for what we do know, even if it's just a little bit. My professor, another professor years ago, had a big impact in my life, and he said, the best evangelism is overheard worship or doxology. It's a people that are so amazed by God's grace, it just oozes out of their lives into the world. A gospel that, that humbles us, and it sends us out with good news to tell, good news that we embody in word and deed, a good news displayed in our service to the king and to others, a good news that says, God, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Because without it, I'd be sunk. Without it, I wouldn't be alive. Without it, I wouldn't be part of your family. I think the best evangelism we can do in the world is a people who are so enamored with Christ and his love and his grace that it just oozes out into our lives in every area of our city and our world. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for Romans 9, 10, and 11. Thank you for reminding us that you are a God who keeps his promises. Thank you for reminding us about your mercy and your grace, that it's all your doing, and that's why it is called mercy and grace. And forgive us, God, for us even being haphazard in our own discipleship and our own sanctification, that even as God's people who are, who are redeemed and are part of your family, that it's easy to be relaxed, it's easy to sit back, it's easy to say, we're good, we're fine, but not to pursue you and go after you and serve you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So God, please forgive us of that. But also thank you, that God, that even though there are things that are mysterious and difficult and hard, that you still reveal enough to us to understand who you are, even if we don't fully understand it, and it deserves our worship and our praise. So help us do that well now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.